How's everybody tonight? Good. If you got your Bibles with you, let's open up Jeremiah. We're going to be in Jeremiah 34 tonight, working our way through this chapter, which is a warning to Zedekiah. The next uh, several chapters are going to be dealing with uh, some specific things with, with Zedekiah. And this particular one, I need to give you some of the background of what's happening. So we read before Jeremiah was in prison. This is probably going backwards. So this is before Jeremiah is in prison. Nebuchadnezzar has begun the siege against Jerusalem. So he's, they're slowly beginning to starve, right? They're out of food, out of water, uh, crying out to the Lord. Zedekiah made a lot of deals, and he had uh, an, a deal with Egypt. And so around verse 10, Egypt is going to move toward Jerusalem. And so when Egypt moves toward Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar is going to break off the siege. And he's going to go down, and he's going to fight uh, Egypt, going to conquer the last two cities of Judah, to make it uh, so Egypt doesn't have any help when he goes south of Jerusalem to fight them. And then he'll come back and finish his siege on Jerusalem. And that will kind of play into, as we read the chapter, some of the events that are going on. Hopefully, um, I'll be able to express those to you as we work our way through. So we begin with the, the timing. What's going on? So it says the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. So this is the last battle. So this is the last time Jerusalem's going to be conquered. After this, there won't be a Jerusalem. There won't be a temple. There won't be a city. There won't be a wall. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to knock it down and burn it all. So that is the future. That's what's happening for them. And we understand that Jeremiah has been in prison because every time he talks to Zedekiah, the king, he doesn't have anything good to say. And Zedekiah gets frustrated with having to hear it. So thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, the king of Judah. And say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving the city to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. So this has pretty much been Jeremiah, like a broken record, what he's been saying to the last four kings of Israel, of Judah. And uh, he's been telling them that Nebuchadnezzar is going to conquer, and they continue to rebel. He's going to challenge them in the beginning to repent, to turn. They don't want to repent or turn. He's going to challenge them to surrender and live. And they don't want to surrender and live, so they're going to fight until uh, there's not anybody left. So he brings this word to Zedekiah, the king, which is probably the word that gets him locked up. Hey, he's going to burn the city with fire. You, there's nothing you can do, Zedekiah. Zedekiah is looking for a way out. If you remember, Zedekiah is the fourth king. He was placed on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar, and now he's rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. So trying to break free of the yoke of Babylon. Babylon has already conquered Judah twice. Uh, 
this will be the third time. You know, they say the third time's a charm, right? So the third time will be three strikes and you're out. There will be no more. So he says to him in verse 3, You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. So Jeremiah gives a prophecy, rather specific prophecy, right? You're going to stand toe-to-toe with Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to look in his eyes. You're going to stand there face-to-face. At the same time that this is going on, you have a group of exiles that are in Babylon. And remember, I've shared with you before that the Lord doesn't leave his people without the word. And so there was a prophet with the exiles, The prophet with the exiles, his name was Ezekiel. So in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13, here's what Ezekiel is prophesying at the same time that Jeremiah is prophesying. He says, I will spread a net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, but he shall not see it, though he shall die there. So he says, one guy says, you're going to stand toe-to-toe with Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to look eye to eye. The other prophet says, he's coming to Babylon, he's going to die in Babylon, but he's never going to see it. So it brings up questions. If you were at that time, are these, do these guys, are these guys in agreement? Are they in disagreement? What's, what's going on? What's going to happen? How does this work out? Most of the time when we come to stuff like this in the Bible, there's a good rule of thumb. The good rule of thumb is just keep reading. And it will all make sense. You ever get to a point where you're pretty sure no matter what happens, it's not going to work out like you thought or, or maybe even in this case, like the prophet said, how can this be worked out the way the prophet said? If we jump ahead, and we're going to read it in Jeremiah when we get to about 37, but let's look at 2 Kings, um, it's It's 2 Kings 25, 6 and 7. It says, Then they captured the king, talking about Zedekiah, and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Riblah is not in Babylon. So here's what's going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar is going to crush Jerusalem. It's finally going to fall. But before it falls, the king is going to sneak out. Because, you know, sacred passages, whatever, he's going to sneak out a crack in the wall. Because he's pretty sure. Jeremiah says, I'm going to have to stand in front of Nebuchadnezzar, but no way. So he jumps out of the wall, takes off running. And they catch him. And they bring him back to Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah. Riblah, outside of Jerusalem. And they passed sentence on him. So they brought his sons before his face. And they killed his sons. So there's Zedekiah, the First thing they do is bring his sons forward. His sons come up and they kill his sons in his sight. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, now take out his eyes. So they cut out Zedekiah's eyes. That was the judgment Nebuchadnezzar gave. And Zedekiah went to Babylon, but he never saw it. Because he was blind. 
So in the land of the exiles in Babylon, Ezekiel is prophesying, hey, this is going to happen to Zedekiah. Back in Jerusalem, you have Jeremiah prophesying, hey, to Zedekiah's face, hey, this is going to happen to you. You're going to stand before the guy you've rebelled against, right? The guy who, who gave you everything you have, the guy who put you on the throne, the guy who gave you your authority, the guy that set you up there, you're going to stand face to face with the one whom you have rebelled against. The Bible tells us there will be a similar state for every man to stand before God, right? That it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, to stand before the one that you have rebelled against. When we stand before God as believers, we have this incredible hope and gift in the gospel, right? The Bible tells us that we stand before God, we stand there covered in the robe of Jesus Christ. Not by my own righteousness, not because of my own good deeds, but because of what Christ has done. Just like we, we saw when we study the scripture and we, we talk about the prodigal son, right? What happened to the prodigal son when the father got to him? He wrapped him up in what? A robe, what did he put on his finger? A ring, right? He gave him authority. He gave him a place. He covered him in the family's righteousness, not because the son was righteous now. He was still who he was. When we stand before God, we'll stand before God in full knowledge of our uh, brokenness, but also in full knowledge of the righteousness of Christ, which covers us. I love the picture of Jesus walking us before the Father in Jude 24 and 25. It says, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you guiltless, blameless before the Father, which is his great pleasure to say, Dad, here's Jackie. I cover him. I'm throwing my robe around him, my righteousness. Well, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why we need a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Right, we put our trust in Jesus. Well, Jeremiah is not done. He's still talking to Zedekiah. He says in verse four, yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, you shall not die by the sword. You're not gonna be killed in battle, but you shall die in peace. The people will burn spices, and as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you, and they will lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in Jerusalem. Now you understand why... Uh, Jeremiah found himself in trouble at times, right? Nobody wants to hear that word. Today, we seldom see these kind of events happen face to face. For example, if you don't like something that a politician is doing, you might write something up on Facebook. But it's different than saying, I'm going to go to the White House, get an audience with the president and tell him what I think. That's what Jeremiah did. 
He went to those who were in power. He shared what God had given him with those who were in power, and it landed him in prison in the palace. In verse 7 it says, Now when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachesh and Zekah, for these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. So Lachesh and Zekah are both south of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and the reason they're mentioned is because this is where Nebuchadnezzar is going to loosen his siege on Jerusalem and move south. He's going to move south. He's going to, he's going to wipe out these two cities, Lachesh and Ezekiah, and then he's going to do battle with Egypt, who is heading up toward Jerusalem. He's going to wipe out the Egyptian army. He's going to come back and lay siege to Jerusalem again. Now, it's interesting when we talk about these two cities because there's some interesting um, archaeological finds uh, that recently have been found. Uh, back in those days, they would often write letter, uh, letters on pottery. You know, it's not like today where you just go to Walmart and get a sheet of paper. A sheet of paper was tough to come by. So they would write on shards of pottery, and those shards of pottery would be delivered. Messages would be passed one from another. There are several letters. You guys can look them up. I'm sure they got an article on Wikipedia on the find if you want to go look at it. They're called the Letters of Lachish. And they talk about the day when the signal fires went out at Ezekiah. So if you picture it, you have Lachish and Ezekiah. They're not that far away from one another. They both know Nebuchadnezzar is coming. There's the normal daily talk that's going between those who are in charge and their, the, the watchtowers that are out on the horizon. And one of the letters says this. May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear this very day. Tidings of good. Now, according to everything which my Lord has sent, uh, this has your servant done. I wrote on the sheet according to everything which you sent to me, and inasmuch as the Lord sent to me concerning the matter of Bet Hadapid, there is no one there. Uh, it's gone. He goes on, and there, uh, and as far as Semakayu and Semayahu, uh, they took him and brought him up to the city. And your servant is not sending him there anymore. But when morning comes around, we'll see. And may my Lord be apprised that we are watching for the signal fires of Lachish. According to all the signs which my Lord has given. Because we can no longer see the signal fires of Azekah. So written on this little chunk of pottery... Dating back to the time of Nebuchadnezzar, you can hear the, the correspondence, right, between the watchtowers as they discuss the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had conquered one of the cities and they were waiting for the fires to go out from the other city as they watched. So the battle moving south, the king, Zedekiah, he's back. I just want you to kind of get this set in your mind. He's back in Jerusalem and he's trying to figure out a way out, right? There's got to be a way out. I need to do something. I need to do, if I do something, uh, maybe the Lord will relent. Maybe all these things that Jeremiah the prophet says is going to happen, maybe they won't happen. 
So you come to verse 8. <clears throat> or, um, yeah, to verse 8. Then the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, after King Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them. So here's what happened. Zedekiah is thinking, now this is a word of the Lord that comes to Jeremiah after this event. We're, we're going to read it in just a moment. Here's what the event is. Zedekiah is thinking, how do I get out of this? How do I, how do I, I need to do something good. You know, we've done a lot of bad things. I need to do something good, right? Because that's going to make good things come back. So I need to think of something good to do. So he says, I know what we should do. We should let go all our slaves. Now here's how economics worked in the times of the Bible. Welfare was accomplished two ways. Welfare was accomplished by the giving of alms. There were people who were crippled, couldn't go anywhere. They would stay out by the temple. And when people walked by, they would give them alms. Alms for the poor that they would use to live. The other way that support was given to the poor was whenever harvest came, they would only pass through the field one time. They were not allowed to harvest the corners of the field. So think of their field just like we would think of our fields today in squares. They would pass through the field once and they would leave the corners with all the, the fruitfulness that was in the corners. That's all left behind. Then the poor would come and glean we have something similar to that, right, when, when they are harvesting for potatoes. And we come back to the potatoes, grab a five-gallon bucket, and you can pretty much get all the potatoes you want to dig for, right? They're, it's not hard. It's not worth their time to go back through the fields. So they go through. They get what they get. And then uh, people can come back and do some gleaning. In the Bible, that's how it was done. So the poor... If they were absolutely unable to go anywhere, they went to the temple and they received alms. Otherwise, they would glean the fields, just like everybody else. They went out and worked the fields, worked the corner of the fields. That's where they got their grain. Just like the farmers, they, they would not get as much as the farmer got, but would be enough for them to live. In their day also, just like in our day to day, People had a tendency to live out beyond their means. You guys ever heard of that? So sometimes people would need to get, they get so buried by their credit that they would declare bankruptcy. Oh, wait, they didn't have bankruptcy back then. That's a modern. Here's what they did. They sold themselves as slaves until they paid off their debt. That was, if you got buried, there was, there was selling yourself as a slave. Now, they had a thing called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, once in a person's lifetime, debts were forgiven and slaves were set free. So once in your lifetime, there was one free pass, one, one free event that would, that would come along. But if you found yourself in between those and you were buried by credit and you couldn't get yourself out of debt, you would sell yourself as an indentured servant to the guy you owed the money to. 
And then you would work for him until you worked it off. You would work for him until you worked it off. Now, here's what the Bible declared. The Bible declared you could only work for him for six years. On the seventh year, you had to be turned loose. So you, you couldn't get yourself into debt buried that you couldn't work yourself out of within seven years. So you would go and be sold. But here's what happened just with everything else that the Lord told the people. Here's how you should work this out. Mankind perverted it, right? And so they would keep them. No, you're still my slave. You're not, it's not worked off yet. It's not worked off. So Zedekiah sends a proclamation. Hey, we've kept these slaves too long. We haven't been following what God's word says. We're going to turn them loose. Now, this is my theory. Nebuchadnezzar is surrounding the city. People are starting to starve. It's looking pretty dire. Jeremiah is talking. I just had to throw him into jail because he said that he's going to burn the whole city. You know, I don't want him telling people about that. We put him in jail so he can't spread that word. I really need to do something good. So he makes a decision, a proclamation to turn all the slaves free. Nebuchadnezzar picks up and moves south. The siege is lifted. I'm sure Zedekiah is thinking, man, I knew this was going to work out. Jeremiah was full of malarkey, right? I knew he didn't know what he was talking about. We didn't have to worry about him. So in verse 9 it says, So everyone would set free as Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one would enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would be set free, or everyone would set free his slave, male or female, and so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. Then I think Nebuchadnezzar left and went down and defeated Egypt. Because if you look at the next verse, it doesn't stay that way. They turned everybody loose. We're not going to slave them anymore. But it says in verse 11, but afterward, after what? After Nebuchadnezzar left. After the siege was lifted. Obviously we did something good. God's pleased. Nebuchadnezzar left. Here we go. Everything's going to be okay. But afterward they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them back into subjection. They were looking for making a deal with the Lord. They turned all the slaves free. Nebuchadnezzar left. And they made the slaves all slaves again. Because that's what man does. Right? We're really good at being just downright bad to one another. Aren't we? I mean, come on. You go home after this and turn on the news. You can watch what's happening in our world. Yesterday, a 17-year-old boy killed two people. Because he was trying to protect a, a store. You can argue the, the ethics of it later. He's trying to protect the store from the people who were trying to burn it. And, and he shot somebody. And when he shot, the first person he shot, he killed him. 
And then the people turned and ran at him. And he ran away from them, and then he tripped and fell. And they, somebody went to jump on him. And as soon as they went to jump on him, he shot them. That person died too. Too dead. A third guy came running over to him with a pistol. Sounds kind of like being in the middle of warfare, no? Comes up to him with a pistol. He shot that guy in the arm. He's going to lose his arm. Seventeen-year-old kid. I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing out there? But you see the games that people play? All the games that people play? There's plenty of blame to go around. There's a lot of people just tired. They want to go make a difference. I doubt when that kid went out, he thought he was going to put on a show. You know, like all those pictures you see on Facebook where patriots go out with their ARs and they got them wrapped around their shoulder and they just stand there, right? And the 40 people who are trying to start something don't start nothing and everything goes good. I'm sure that's what he thought. Today he's in jail. They're going to try to get him for first degree murder, which is just dumb because that requires premeditation, but we'll see. We'll see. But kids. And who's the ones do, doing all the burning and throwing things? Who are they? They're kids too. When you're my age, they're all kids. Bunch of kids running amok, lawlessness. Why? Because the people who ought to be in charge taking care of things, to be honest, they just care about their power. As long as you're not burning down houses on my block, we're all good with it. And so the division grows wider. It's not shocking to me that back in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, a guy said, hey, let's let all the slaves free. How do you think them slaves felt? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, he goes south. That's got to be, they're got to be free for a period of time. Right? They're free for a while. And because Nebuchadnezzar left and the siege is open, I think now they're able to get food into the city. They're all the things that they weren't able to get. Life is looking better. And then all those slaves who thought they were free get somebody knocking at their door saying, yeah, yeah we changed our mind. You're all slaves again. This... Uh, this rotation of bondage that man does with man. Whether we're in bondage over our hate, whether we're in bondage over our unforgiveness, whether we're in bondage over sin, doesn't matter. We all find ourselves in bondage to something. And the only person who sets you free and keeps you free is Jesus. Whom the Son sets free, he is free indeed. All of that, to me, all of that history, all of our history that, that I spend too much time watching on the news, all of that stuff I look at and I, and I think this is exactly, this is exactly Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the kingdoms of men. And if you remember Nebuchadnezzar, after the dream, you remember the dream of the statues, all the different kingdoms rotating. I've talked about it a number of times. <laughs> the next thing Nebuchadnezzar did was say, no, 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 my kingdom will never end. 
And he built a statue, <coughs> excuse me, a statue of gold because he was the head of gold. Remember the statue? So he built a statue of gold saying, my kingdom's never going to end. You know, his was the shortest of them all. 70 years, pretty much. That's it. Wow. My kingdom's never going to end. But it does. And it's not the patriotic spirit that's going to deliver you. It wasn't the patriotic spirit of Jerusalem that was going to deliver them, was it? If they all went out in the streets or they threw Zedekiah out and they chose a new king, the Lord said, you're, you're going to go down. You're going to slavery. You're going to exile. This is my judgment. It wasn't all of that. It was just having an attitude of repentance, saying, Lord, forgive us. That's what Daniel ultimately does. When he's reading Jeremiah and Daniel realizes, you know, the 70 years is almost over. And he cries out to God and says, Lord, forgive us. Daniel, one of two characters in the Bible of whom no sin is listed. He's the one repenting for the nation. He's the one crying out. Forgive us. Lord, forgive us. And when I sit down in my chair and I, and I watch all the stuff that's going on, all I have is shame. Yeah, I can blame. I can blame all the Democrats. I can blame everybody else. Or I could look in the mirror and say, where were you? We let it all happen. Because the silent majority, if there is such a thing, the silent majority mostly says, if you leave me alone, I'll let you do what you want. And now, it's time for harvest. The Bible says, if you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. Seems like a lot of whirlwind going on, no? A lot of Wind blowing, a lot of chaos going on. So these guys, they say, look, we're going to set them all loose. And then they went back and gathered them all. Now, Jeremiah, while that's going on, Jeremiah, he's, he's going to receive a word from the Lord. And the Lord's going to say, hey, hey, I want you to give Zedekiah one more word. Zedekiah ain't heard enough from me yet. Zedekiah ain't heard enough. I, I think sometimes... You know, I, I look at scripture and I look at this and I think, you know, I want, I want to be a person who is open for when God is correcting me to not whine about, Lord, when are you going to tell me something good? But I want to be a person who just is willing to receive that correction and say, okay, I want to I try to do better, right? I want to try to grow. Somewhere we all bought into this thing where where where. You can't have too many negative things happening. Sometimes when you're at the bottom of the bucket, there ain't nothing but sludge in the bucket. You can call it whatever pretty things you want, but it's just a pile of sludge, man. We got to get that sludge out. The Lord bringing correction, bringing correction, bringing correction. I want to be like David, you know, who was able to say when Nathan stood before him and said, David, you are that man. The sword's never going to depart your family. The baby's going to die. The children of Israel are dying because of your census. The different 
things that happened in David's life, a man after God's own heart. But what did David do when that happened? He repented. He said, Lord, forgive me and give me the strength to be the man you want me to be. And that is a constant state of being. There's no such thing as I arrived at it. Why? You know, I'm celebrating. Yesterday I became holy. And now I never have to deal with any of those troubles again. No, every day I want to be a person who's able to receive correction from the Lord, right? If I've done wrong, Lord, call me out on what I've done wrong. And then I want to be a man who will repent of the wrong and then ask you to help me be better. That's how this world turns around. Don't matter how many times you shoot the bad guy. There's another bad guy behind him. Last I checked, there's no shortage of evil in the world. And I don't have that many bullets. But God is able to change hearts, right? God is able to change me. God's able to change them. I want to be able to be a vessel used by the Lord. Who may be able to bring just enough change to see something different in the next few years in front of us, right? So the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he says, oh yeah, you're Zedekiah, that's so cool. You know, I made a deal with your family a long time ago when they were all slaves. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think this is going to go good. He says, I made a deal with them. I brought them out of slavery. And I said, at the end of every seven years, each of you must set free your fellow Hebrews who have been sold to you and have served you six years. You must set them free from your service. But your fathers did not listen or incline their ears to me. This was an area that they had been disobedient in. Verse 15, but you, Zedekiah, this is so cool, you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection again to be your slaves. So the Lord says, yeah, I remember a covenant. And here's the deal I made with your forefathers. And they, they broke that covenant with me. But you, you repented. You turned. You opened your heart. You set them free. And then you profaned my name when you went back and got them again. You went back and gathered them again. So verse 17 says, Therefore thus says the Lord, You have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty. God's freeing something else, so right? I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine declares the Lord, I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. So they're, they're in a time, a little buffer space, right? Maybe, maybe a month, 
maybe two months, I don't know, where, where Nebuchadnezzar's gone south, defeated Egypt before he comes back up. And Zedekiah thinks, oh man, I, I made God happy, they left, well, we might as well get the slaves back. I don't want to pull my own weeds, and I don't want to have to deal with these things anymore, so we'll go get those slaves back. And the Lord says, no, 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 this, it's not over. That was just a parenthesis. He says, I'm going to free the sword. I'm going to free pestilence. And I'm going to free famine. It's an interesting group. Yes? You ever read Revelation? Revelation chapter 6, we call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first one is a world leader promising peace but bringing war. And with war comes pestilence, and with pestilence, famine, with famine, death. You have the four horsemen of the apocalypse coming through, bringing that signal that signifies God's judgment, right? Just like it's signifying God's judgment here, here comes God's judgment, the sword, pestilence, and famine declares the Lord, and I will make you a horror to the other kingdoms. People are going to say, oh my gosh, did you see what happened to Jerusalem? They're going to tell the stories. Verse 18, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two. See, when they made this covenant, I don't want you just to think they said, Hey, we're going to turn the slaves free. Hey, we're going to let the slaves go. Or hey, we're going to go pick them back up again. They went to the temple. They brought a sacrifice. They took the animal, the calf. They cut it in two pieces. And they split the pieces apart. And they stood between those two pieces before God. And they said, Lord... We vow to set the slaves free, and if we don't keep our vow, may the same thing that happened to this calf happen to us. That's the word to make a covenant is to cut covenant. When people made a peace treaty, they cut an animal in half, and they both stood in the middle, and they would shake hands. I promise to keep my side of the deal. Me too. Whoever breaks the deal becomes like this calf. Whoever breaks their word becomes like this calf. That's why it's so important when we look at the covenant given to Abraham. Remember Abraham cut covenant. He divided all the animals. He's chasing away all the ravens and the vultures that are coming. And then he falls asleep. And who walks in the middle? Just God, right? And God says, here's what I'm going to do. Now is God going to keep his promise? For sure. All those, the Abrahamic promise will be kept. Those promises will be completed. And so when the Lord says, I'm going to make them like that calf, that's what they did. They passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them to the hand of their enemies and the hand of those who seek their lives. And their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Have you read Revelation? There's something called the Feast of the Great God that takes place at the Battle of Armageddon where God calls all the birds of the air and he says, come and eat the flesh 
of all those who have broke the kings of flesh the king or the the flesh of kings the flesh of of the great the flesh of the small he's saying look you will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth now all any of those guys ever had to do was lay down their pride and in humility surrender. That's all they had to do. And they could live. You remember when we when we read in the New Testament, there's a point when the when the gospel is taking off and the the leaders of the of the Jews get together and they get together with a guy named Gamaliel. You guys heard of him? He's the guy who Paul sat at his feet. He was Paul's rabbi uh, when Paul was Saul. And uh, they're talking about what should we do to stop this thing? And I'm not saying his advice was good or godly or anything, but he said something interesting. You remember what he said? Hey, be careful that you don't find yourself fighting against God. You better know this is not what God's doing. Before you take up arms and fight, you better know. In this case, they had a prophet standing there telling them, right? Don't do it. But they also had prophets saying, oh, no, don't listen to Jeremiah. He's full of beans. When you have two different messages, you know which one you'll be drawn to? The one you like the best. Right? Oh, yeah. But this guy, you know, when he preaches, he makes me laugh. I like him. Oh, that guy, you know, look at him. He's too ugly. He can't possibly be saying anything good. I don't know what things float through our minds when we amass for ourselves teachers, but when there's two different messages, you better know what the word says. No guessing. No. Know the word. And then be obedient to the word. Jeremiah had given him the word. The people battling against the word. God said, I'm going to take you out of the land and your bodies won't be buried. The birds are going to eat them. And if you read 2 Kings, you can read about all of that happening. Just like God said. Just like Jeremiah told them. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. Remember I told you he had withdrawn. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to this city, and they will fight against it, and they will burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. So nothing's going to be left. Nothing's going to be left there. It's all wiped out. It's all burned. Is that the end of the story? No. Look, it is never the end of the story until you're standing before our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you may find yourself, I may find myself, we may all collectively 
be under God's judgment now. We may, maybe this is the beginning of the end of the United States. Maybe this is a parenthetical pause, opportunity for repentance and revival and God to do, to, to still do and accomplish something good. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I can just tell you what the word, what the word of God says. But no matter what it is, it's not the end until you're looking at your great God and Savior face to face. And if it's not the end, we have a job to do. Yes? We have a, we have a role. There's something God's calling us to. There are people in your sphere of influence that I'm never going to talk to. But you can talk to them. You can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. You can just talk about how important Jesus is to you. And maybe the Lord is going to give you opportunity to do more than that at some point. We can be a part of the solution that is necessary, certainly in our community, certainly in our families, to watch God work. It is never over until I see his face. So God calls us, even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of bad news, even in the midst of, man, what do you think it was like for Jeremiah, his whole life? How many, how many positive messages did he preach? Like We can count them, I guarantee, two hands. Maybe one. So you get positive message, a lot of, a lot of downers, a lot of, oh my gosh, we're in judgment. We need to repent, we need to repent. But it's not over. Ezekiel is over there with the exiles telling the exiles, hey guys, we're here. We have a life. Live. Trust in the Lord. Repent and obey. <clears throat> and God will bring us back to the land. And then here's the promise. In every prophet, <clears throat> we have this promise. I call it the Gog and Magog promise. One day, God is going to put down evil once and for all. He told Ezekiel about it. He told Jeremiah about it. He told Isaiah about it. He said, there will be a day when I will put this down. There will be a day when the kingdom of, of God will rise there will be a day. So what did Paul tell us to do then? In light of current events, in light of the things around us, what did he say? He said, I can't spend all my time looking back at where I've tripped, where I've fallen, where I've messed up. He said, forgetting the things which lie behind, I press on toward the upward call of Christ Jesus my Lord. I know he's calling me to better things. I know he's calling me to a better life. I know he's calling me to turn from my failures and walk in the power that he's provided me to walk in. So Paul said, not that I have already accomplished, but this one thing I do, I set my eyes on the prize and I keep moving forward. And that's what we need to do. Put our eyes on the prize. Put one foot in front of the other. Do the next right thing. Talk, talk to the next person about the Lord. Do whatever we can to, to make a situation better. Cry out to God to give us 
the words, the, the, the spirit of God to accomplish the things he's calling us to do. And we keep moving forward. Because we are not fighting to attain victory. We have already won. We are fighting from victory. The only question is, how many will be at the party? How many will be in celebration when the King of Kings is revealed? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, again, the opportunity to study your word, to open your word, to delve in. God, we want to understand. We want to know. We want to make right application. We want to make right interpretation. Lord, we want to be able to observe your word, see the, the seeds of hope, the seeds of correction, the direction that you're laying out for us. We want to lay hold of it, and we want to be able to walk in it. We want to be able to honor you and celebrate you in the midst of it all so that I can be, you know, like Paul maybe who spent time in, in prison and there there are Christians and they're, they're about to be thrown to the wolves and, and they're afraid and they're scared, but Paul could say it's going to be okay. It's whether we live or die. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain may we be filled with the hope that we have an answer to give to those who ask us a reason for the hope that is within us oh, I may be just as disgusted and frustrated as the next guy when I look at our world but I understand what's needed is not another scream in the crowd nobody can hear it what is needed is the touch of Jesus Christ to the heart of people who are hurting and they think they've found something that works and all of this anger and frustration is boiling out on every side. God, I just pray that you might put us somewhere where we can touch someone with your truth and that your truth would grant hope and faith and light in the darkness to draw men back from the edge and draw men to a relationship with you. Lord, you declared if we lift you up, if we exalt you, Jesus Christ, if we lift you up, you will draw all men to yourself. So Lord, may we take up that effort to exalt you wherever we go until we see your face. In Jesus' name, amen.